This is TC Daily, the technology show brought to you by Tech Central. If you haven't subscribed to us yet, do so at youtube.com slash techcentral. And while you're at it, why not subscribe to Tech Central's daily newsletter at techcentral.co.za slash newsletter. Now, I'm joined in the studio today by Cliff DeWitt, and he is CTO at Netstar. It's good to see you, Cliff. It's been a while. Welcome. Duncan, thank you very much for having me. Pleasure. It has, it has been a while. I think the last time I saw you, you were still at Microsoft. That's right, yes. We talked about the cloud coming to the continent for the first time. It feels, like, right. feels like an age ago, doesn't <laughs> That's it? That's right, Microsoft Azure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I was having a look at your LinkedIn profile um, preparing for this interview today, and uh, you were at Microsoft for an exceptionally long time. You were there for uh, 16, 17 years, was it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was a very long time. It's okay. a lot of change in the company over that, over that time. Very good time. I, yeah. I enjoyed my stint at Microsoft a lot. When you started, Bill Gates would have been CEO. He was, he yeah. was. He, Bill was there. Um, I saw the transition to, to Barmer and, and, and how that kind of worked, or I suppose didn't work in some respects. <laughs> okay. uh, got to meet Bill once or twice, which was okay. an interesting experience. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, it was a really good time. Yeah, yeah. And then Satya Nadella was CEO by the time you left, I think? He did, yeah. Mm. I, got, I, got the, I got the transition into Satya. And mm. again, you know, interesting to see what a, what a leader who, who really understands a business can do, right? I think yeah. you've seen the sort of trend in, in large tech companies where, Sometimes it's run by, say, I guess, a more financially or sales-focused guy, mm. and I guess the trend these days is to sort of have more of the engineers run run some of these larger organizations. And yeah. I, I think Satya has certainly done very well for Microsoft, yeah. uh, focusing on both people and technology. I think that's really what he's done incredibly mm. well. Mm. Yeah, Microsoft certainly um, is a changed company. At the time you were there, it, it went from 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 a you know from a very Bill Gates dominated style leadership style to something that's very different. Yes. Like, much more democratic, I feel, more open culture, yes. Yes. et cetera. So it must have been quite fascinating to, to have spent your, a big chunk of your career at an organization that went through such massive change. Yeah. No, it was. And I think there's a learning in that, right? I mm. think, and maybe it's just the evolution of technology in some respects, right? Because I think, I think when technology starts and it's unique, and certainly there's a unique proposition in the market, in many cases... Uh, the inventors or the, the, the owners of, of, of that estate mm. try to build a walled garden around it, yeah. right? I think it's true of sort of, you know, even today, Apple in some respects does that. Um, but larger, many of these tech companies kind of try and defend their, their customer base and, and sort of lock them in in some respects. And I think Microsoft was sort of took that approach initially, you know, mm-hmm. if you were in the ecosystem. But I think sometimes visionaries understand that technology get, gets, gets democratized quickly mm. And that if you think about opening your technology to different platforms, to different environments, to different, di- different demographics, your addressable market goes up exponentially. Yeah. And, I, and I think the way Satya approached Cloud, for instance, was a really good example of that, where he very quickly realized that if you're going to build a cloud platform, you should support more than just your own operating systems. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess likewise for Office as well, where Office was initially only on the Windows platform, yeah. but you open it up to a larger addressable market, not only is it good for the for the larger ecosystem, but for you as the as the provider, your as I said, your addressable market becomes much much bigger, and does really well for you financially. So I think there's definitely some learning in that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's astonishing how Microsoft went from from Steve Ballmer t- t- talking about the GPL, which was the license behind uh, behind Linux and much o- much of open source software as a yes. cancer, yes, to Microsoft buying GitHub. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's quite a move. It is. It is. I, and it just shows you sort of, again, mm. I think the power of a leader and a visionary leader. And then also understanding what people ultimately want, right? Mm. And uh, I think if you focus on actually providing value mm-hmm. and providing products and services that actually work, 
people will buy them, irrespective of locking them into mm. a platform. Mm. And again, I think there's a lot of lessons, even into some of today's incumbents, I think mm -hmm. are still falling foul of that. So mm. it's an interesting world right now. Indeed, indeed. So we're not talking Microsoft today, we're <laughs> no. talking everything but Microsoft, in <laughs> fact. So, so Cliff, you, you're an electrical engineer, you studied at WITS, um, but you've always had a, a knack for computing, a, f a fascination with computing. Yeah. And uh, one of your first roles was, in fact, um, helping a Nedbank launch Internet banking, tell us about that. Yeah, so I, I, I guess uh, I, I did a little bit of electronic engineering after I left university. Um, you know, I've always loved electronics. I still mm -hmm. sort of tinker it with it today, but I was definitely much more of a software guy. Right. So I, I was kind of drawn to this world of sort of internet was kind of 99 to 98, 99. Um, the internet was just becoming a big thing and I, and I applied for a role and I got a role at NetBank. Um, they just sort of launched their, their first sort of, it almost like a proof of concept of internet banking. Mm -hmm. And the team that I joined left soon after I joined. So I was sort of handed this, this pet project that was internet banking. It was a fascinating journey because we sort of took this thing into production, um, into sort of real supported production. And I think in, I forget the, the actual numbers, but in, you know, in a couple of months, it moved from, it moved from being sort of a, a, a trial to the biggest branch in the bank as, mm. as they were measured, you know, access at the time. So they kind of, they benchmarked access by how big a branch was. And we sort of just realized, again, the, the, the discussion we've just had, if you give people exactly what they want on the right medium and the right platform, how quick adoption happens. Mm -hmm. And so we lived, I lived through the, sort of through that transition of, of, of taking it from being, a, being an experiment into uh, what was then just a single server and figuring out how to scale this thing across multiple servers, how to deal with 24 by seven, because branches obviously close, so you have support <laughs> windows. So it was a very different space for the bank at the mm. time, running banking operations 24 by seven, having to service it, and having to do it at the scale that, that, that users and customers demanded. So it yeah. was fascinating, taught it me how- It was called Net, NetBank. It was called it? NetBank, N-E-T-B-A-N-K, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Days, yeah. Yeah. Was, was Barry Hall the CIO back then? He was, yes. So was he ultimately in, in charge of this project? He was, yes, and okay. Barry was in my office on the odd occasion asking me what I was actually doing <laughs> with his bank. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. I believe he was a I tough taskmaster. <laughs> he was. <laughs> it, it wasn't a fun experience. <laughs> <laughs> but that was, uh, that was a long time ago. So, I mean, you must have been building that bank on top of early versions of, of Internet Explorer and... We did. And I don't think Firefox was even out then. It, it was wasn't. Netscape uh, Navigator. It was, yeah. The, the browsers were definitely, I mean, we, we were a Microsoft shop at the time. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. we definitely uh, supported Internet Explorer. The backend servers were all Windows servers. Um, yes, um, we used the Microsoft Transaction Server, I think, to, to mm -hmm. call it MTS. So, there was some interesting tech in the SQL Server database. Right. Uh, but then eventually, you know, we got a little bit more industrial. We had a a MQ series server that spoke directly to the mainframe when we got out of the branch environment. Yeah. So we, we made it a bit more industrial over time. And we rewrote it, you know, I think in the first 18 months, two years, yeah. we completely rewrote it. So we, we had another project that right. we rewrote the thing. Yeah. So yeah. NetBank was a very much a Microsoft shop back then. It was, it was. In fact, uh, Bill Gates came to visit Barry Horn on a, one or two occasions. I think it was just before I joined that that oh, happened, okay. yes. But, um, yeah, it was a it was a big Microsoft shop, mm. and I guess it's sort of how I got introduced to Microsoft. Microsoft, yeah. Initially, yeah, I was on a on a bit of a joint development program for the Windows two thousand uh, mm -hmm. rollout, and I spent six weeks, I think, in, on campus at Redmond. Oh, nice. Yeah, so mm. I kind of got to know the company a little bit, and I realized it would be really interesting to work on a, on the other side of the fence of it. Well, so that that's kind of I guess where I learned the difference between consuming product yeah. and being a user of product and the building side of product. Yeah, yeah. And the difference 
when you you know when you build something and sell it to lots of different people versus mm. you use it to run your own business. And I think I was I then realized that I probably really want to work at a product company. And mm -hmm. I suppose it's probably been my journey from from then on out. Okay, okay. So you spent a good uh, 16 or 17 years at Microsoft. Uh, then then I kind of lost touch with you, Cliff. So I'm not sure what you did. Yeah. There were a couple of intervening steps before you joined NetStar. What what were those yeah. steps? So I, I decided, uh, well, one of my, one of my you know, through all my roles at Microsoft, I eventually ended up running what they called the DX, which was sort of the developer division. So sort of everything that has to do with software developers, developers, developers. That's, developers. It. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> to quote someone. Exactly. <laughs> was kind of lumped into one division. So I, you know, I had I, I sold Visual Studio and all the all the all the all the sales products. We we ran all the big events. Um, but one thing we we also did, interesting enough, and and um, with support of Monteto, who was then then my boss at the time. We built a very interesting startup program. So we uh, we managed to secure some funding from government. We co-opted a bunch of partners together, and we built a fairly successful startup program, uh, where we obviously gave startups a bunch of free software, and we worked with local incubators. And I kind of observed this whole startup scene. So so on my exit with Microsoft, I I, I, I and a fellow director who was running the the small and medium business, we mm -hmm. started our own business um, in partnership with with Metrofile, with a listed JSE mm -hmm. entity. And we, we, we thought that this whole uh, digital disruption of document management was ripe for disruption. So we, we built a product to digitalize, uh, to digitalize the document management process. Took us about 18 months to build up a, a bit of software. Um, and for various reasons, you know, it didn't work. So I guess, you know, one thing I've learned about the startup space is that it's never guaranteed to work. Um, but I think the lessons you learn in starting an entity, yes. working with a listed working with a listed entity who provided you funding, taught me a hell of a lot about how businesses really work. Um, you know, when it's one thing working in a large corporation where cash flow is not an issue, where you're not really that close to the investor community and understanding expectations. So, yeah, I think we failed at a at a business level, but certainly at a personal level, mm -hmm. taught me one hell of a lot about about how businesses actually run and operate. And what do they say about startups? If you, if you haven't failed at least once, you're not doing it right. <laughs> you know, it's nice to say, and it's good to read the books, but when you yeah. fail and you personally do it, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's a tough it's life traumatic. lesson. Yeah. It is very traumatic. So, so and, and that was sort of just before COVID. So I, I decided that it was time to take a little bit of time off. I took eight months off. Uh, I did a little bit of consulting. Um, uh, I joined a um, I joined a big multinational who was establishing a practice. Yeah, they called Crayon, mm -hmm. and I helped them starting to establish a data and AI practice. So we we started okay. building. They had a very strong AI competency. So we started building that practice out, and then I was approached um, to look at the at the NetStar role, um, and I thought let's let's have a discussion. Mm -hmm. um, I, I interviewed, and and the board made me an offer. So I was kind of at an interesting crossroads. I was kind of enjoying my consulting role. Mm -hmm. But as I looked at the company and I kind of looked at sort of where the world was going, both in terms of IoT and data, I really jumped at the opportunity because I think it's a, you know, I think it's it's a company that's sort of grown over the last 25, 24 odd years. Obviously, got a strong brand association with with tracking and vehicle recovery. Mm -hmm. But I think as this world of IoT grows, and we can talk maybe a little bit about how it's matured over the last sure. couple of years. I saw the enormous potential in what NetStock could become yeah. more than just a vehicle tracking company. And mm -hmm. So I jumped at the opportunity. 
Okay, great. Well, we're going to go into that in quite a bit of detail. There's some pretty exciting stuff to talk about, especially around IoT and AI and machine learning, etc. Um, but before we get to all of that, uh, something I learned about you this morning, in fact, while we were <laughs> chatting, uh, and I want to I want to touch on that before we before we get into uh, into, into NetStar, and that's that you have a keen interest in astrophotography. Yeah. Um, Crazy hobby. And we're going to we're going to put a, a, a picture up on on, on screen now. Uh, this image that uh, our viewers are seeing on screen now um, is the center of of the galaxy. Amazing photograph. How did you uh, How did you take it? Yeah, it's it's it's, it's interesting. So I've, I guess I've always had this sort of fascination with with astronomy, and and I, it's it's an interesting intersection of astronomy and, and photography, which is one of my my mm. really deep passions. Um, yeah, I've been doing it for sort of 12, 15 years. I've tried a couple of telescopes, but I've always been really disappointed with my image results. And and I guess as with sort of all technology, it's it's sort of come of age lately. So um, both in terms of software, but also in terms of hardware. So I just recently bought myself. Uh, a reasonably good astronomy camera. Um, you know, as with all things, the Chinese have could have got into the manufacture of cameras. Um, so, so the camera is specifically designed for astrophotography. Absolutely. So, so who are the big brands in the space? So there's sort of two. There's one called QHY and another one called ASI. Are the two big guys? I've never heard of them. You'll want to hear of them. Um, the American brand is something called SBIG Santa Barbara Instrument Group. They're really these weird. It doesn't even look like a camera, right? It's a it's a round block of, okay. of aluminium. And basically all it is is an image sensor right. with a Peltier cooler belt, uh, bolted to the back of it because um, if you can cool the sensor, you reduce the noise on the image. Oh. So they, they cool them, we cool them to about minus 10 degrees C, minus 15 when you're taking an image. And that reduces a lot of the dark current that comes into the image. Amazing. Yeah, it's really interesting. So it really doesn't look like a camera at all. It looks like so these amazing pictures you see of space are not taken on a Nikon or a... Not, not or many a of Canon, them. No. So certainly, not the, not, certainly not the professional ones. Right. Um, Almost all the amateurs these days are using these sort of dedicated astro cameras. Um, How much do they cost? Um, yeah, anything from about five hundred dollars to about two thousand dollars, sort of okay. somewhere around. There. So not prohibitive. Not not yeah. crazy. I mean, you, you can go much higher. So you always can. With <laughs> you, know, you can get you, you get these esoteric brands that do really really crazy stuff. But I mean, it's not off the charts expensive. So I, that's what I said. It's kind of becoming it's becoming acceptable, certainly in in rand terms. Mm. Slightly acceptable. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, and, and, and I think the other learning is that you don't really have to have a massive telescope. So the image we saw was really taken with a 135mm camera lens, right? Mm -hmm. so, so it's... Astonishing. It's and what sort of exposure are you? I'm shooting about... So I, I, the, the, the most of the good cameras are, are monochrome cameras. So yeah. what you do is you, you shoot in, in monochrome, but you have filters that, that sit in front of it. Mm -hmm. So you then f you shoot a set of red, greens, and blues if you want if you want natural color. Otherwise, you can use some other interesting filters that look at specifically the nebula emission filters that come off mm -hmm. the. So there's they call them hydrogen alpha, oxygen, and sulfur filters. And the nice thing if you shoot monochrome, and you use those in real time with the camera as you, you do. You do. So you actually have a little clever little device that sits in front of the camera. They call that a camera filter wheel. And it's got a little servo motor in it, and you can and you can automate it all through your through through what they call the capture software. Mm -hmm. So you can say turn the filter to this position and put it in. And then to answer your question on the exposure, so we're sitting anything anywhere between sixty seconds and sort of two three minutes. Okay. And it's sitting on a on a tripod that actually tracks the stars. So right. the last part of the mechanical trick is. How do you set this thing up so it tracks the stars? Otherwise, you get a blur. Yes, mm -hmm. because of course the, the stars, stars are rotating. Yeah. 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 And actually, what I have is I have a small little secondary telescope that that you with a very small, almost like a webcam in it, mm -hmm. that, that looks at a star, and then you have another little piece of software that that some really smart guys are writing and maintain another open source project. Yeah. that Watches the star and they lock onto the star and then they send little correction pulses to the to the to the tripod to make sure that it tracks the sky 
completely Amazing. accurately. Yeah. So there are forums online that. Oh yeah, no, no, it's another whole mess of <laughs> tribes. If you, will, <laughs> if you will, if you will, <laughs> it's crazy. Right, and you, you, you're mentioning this. There's also this, a whole ton of amazing open source software, not just for for uh, for tracking the stars and the motion of the, of the Earth. I guess it's not the stars that are moving; it's the planet that's moving. Yes, but, exactly. <laughs> but um, uh, also for post production. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, once you, once you sort of get into the world. There's guys that give incredible amounts of their personal time to mm. build these things. And, and, and I think as with all good open source projects, there's, there's a lot of contributors as well. So, um, yeah, there's, there's, there's both on the planning side. So I, I guess the three big big steps of planning what you want to take mm. a photo of because the nice thing about the heavens as opposed to terrestrial photography is that stuff stays at the same place. You know where it's going to arrive as long as there's not clouds in the way. You get kind of what you're going to get. So, yeah, yeah. so you, you can plan it out quite nicely. Then there's the acquisition side. So when you're taking the images, you know, how do you control the camera? What filters are you using? How long are your exposures? You can kind of automate that whole thing and mm. people build these super complex acquisition pieces of software. And then, as you said, sort of there's the post-production side, which is kind of like the Photoshop of astrophotography. So, so there's a couple of, some of them are free. There's a big open source movement. A couple of them are paid for now as well. Mm -hmm. So some guys that have really spent a ton amount of time there. So this photo we've been looking at, where did you take this? So I took it in the Mountain Zebra National Park okay. in, in, in the middle of the Karoo. Um, the no light pollution. Yeah, that's exactly it. So we planned our trip so that we'd be there over New Moon. Um, we were having load shedding as well, which actually in that case is a blessing. <laughs> one of the few guys who likes <laughs> exactly. the load shedding. <laughs> so that was quite fortunate. Um, yeah, and, and I shot for three nights. I shot the entire night, so because the Milky Way is such a big, uh, a mm -hmm. big thing, the, the image is actually uh, forty-two, I think, panel forty-panel mosaic. So you take lots of individual oh, wow. shots and you glue them all together. And I think the, t the original image is about a half a gigapixel. So <laughs> it, it took a fair amount of computing power to actually just generate and, and work yeah. with the image. That was a challenge in its own right, mm -hmm. like finding enough, a machine with enough RAM yeah. and enough compute just to do the basic image manipulation was quite tough, actually. Yeah, yeah. so uh, I guess we, what we should do is include a link to the, the full image online. We can, yes. With, with the show notes for, for this episode, uh, because we can only broadcast in 1920 <laughs> yeah, pixels, which does it no justice. <laughs> exactly, it's a great idea. So anyone who's keen to see it, we'll include the link uh, in, in the show notes for cool. this episode. But um, uh, Cliff, you must have been absolutely uh, uh, awe-inspired, gobsmacked, I'm not sure what the right word is, uh, with the images that came from the James Webb Space Telescope that oh, was launched recently. It's phenomenal, right? It's actually, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, and, and in fact, it's, I, I have a, as much as I like going to dark sites, it's actually incredible what you can shoot just, yeah, in suburban mm. Johannesburg. So I shoot, yeah. a, I shoot a fair amount just from my balcony Amazing. at home when you use the right filters, because yeah. if you use what they call narrowband filters, you cut out almost all the light and you just cut out, you just let the bits through that are, that are specific to the nebula, especially for a ne for mission, what they call a ne mission nebula. So it's stuff that's transmitting light. It's kind of like a, a neon tube, right? Mm. When the stars are sending out energy and there's this dust and it ionizes and you get this nice mm. glow. So a lot of those photos that you see, the classic sort of astro photos of this dust clouds, mm. all are all those emission nebula. Anyway, you can shoot those from an urban environment because you just let in just that little bit of light and then the light pollution doesn't really make that Amazing. much of a difference. I would never have guessed that. Yeah, but anyway, coming back mm. to your question. So I took a shot of a, of, a, of a galaxy or a nebula down here. It's called Eta Carini. Um, and, and so did JWST, and it was fascinating putting the two of them next to each other and just comparing you know, what you could do with your modest equipment. I mean, you can still see it's the same mm -hmm. outline, and maybe we can, we can share that as well. Um, but but you, just, you just 
blown away with the level mm -hmm. of detail that's yeah. coming off that thing. Yeah. I suppose 20 years and uh, countless billion dollars, you expect a bit better than what I can do in my back garden. <laughs> 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 10 billion, I think it was. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> yeah. But um, ama amazing, amazing images. I, I love looking at them as well. Yeah, we've got a few in the office here. They're phenomenal. Which I'll show you before we go today. Yeah. Um, great. Well, let's uh, let's get on to uh, your day job, which, sure, is, yeah. uh, which is, uh, ran, uh, is CTO of NetStar. Um, so it was quite fortuitous, actually, Cliff, that uh, Ultron put out their results uh, this morning. It yes. wasn't, wasn't planned to have you in here on the same day the interim results were published. You're not the numbers guy, so I'm not going to ask you about the balance sheet and income statement. Thank you. Us, but uh, I, will, I will pick up on one thing that was, was mentioned, which, which caught my attention, and that was a, a statement that there was a, a change in the sales mix and increased GSM costs to counter the impact of blackouts due to load shedding. Uh, wh what's that about? What's, what's caused that? Yeah, so, so I mean, I guess part of our business is obviously tracking. I mean, we're ostensibly an IoT business, right? Mm -hmm. So um, mostly known for the IoT devices we put into vehicles, of course. Um, and the backhaul of that tends to mostly be cellular connections. We do run a private network of our own as a backup because you know, bad guys do interesting things with vehicles. Mm -hmm. So we need, a, we need a different way of getting off the vehicle. Um, but our primary communication is, is cellular. Um, and we have noticed, um, specifically with load shedding, is that as the, as the load shedding happens, you know, the network is not always as stable as, as, it, as it could be. Um, mm -hmm. a, a lot of our discussions, obviously, with the operators, you know, I think we, we all know that, that, that battery theft has gone up uh, dramatically. So when cell towers uh, lose battery connection or lose power for extended periods of time, they go down. And so what we've had to do is, uh, is, is increase our GSM costs by allowing for roaming. Mm -hmm. And so what we do is we make sure that our devices can pair across both MTN and Vodacom and, and a little bit on CellC, mostly MTN and Vodacom in our case at the moment. And so we've had to pair our, our devices to, to use both networks, which obviously changes the, the cost profile for us. Um, um, we're, a, we're a large customer of Vodacom and we use a, a platform that they call GDSP, mm -hmm. which is the IoT network provider. So it's actually part of the Vodafone group. Um, so that's our primary communication mechanism. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, I guess, the sort of the backstory behind that, just because okay. of the load shedding causes a bit of network instability. And it tends to be transient. Like, I, mean, I think we've all seen it, right? I think we've all seen driving around and all of a sudden you lose connectivity mm -hmm. on your phone. Uh, our devices are, are the same. And uh, yeah. of course, because we have such a big... Uh, a big addressable base of, of devices out there, you know, north of a million devices um, in the field, we have a pretty good picture on sort of where, where, where things are, okay. are not connecting. I always assumed, uh, um, obviously, I, I have a, a, a tracking system in my car. Uh, I actually don't know which company it is, to be <laughs> honest, but I have one in my car. Uh, and I just assumed it, it was running on GPS or some sort of satellite-based uh, technology. I'm interested to hear, yes. to hear how dependent you are on GSM as well. Yes. So, so it's quite an interesting sort of if you break the device in the vehicle down, sort yeah. of what's happening. Um, they're actually fairly complicated devices. So, yes, it definitely speaks to the GPS, but the GPS is obviously receive-only. So, so what you're using the GPS for is to figure out where you are on the planet. Right. So that gives you positional data. It gives you very accurate time data. So GPSs are really good for two things, giving you position mm -hmm. and giving you very accurate time. Um, in our case, what we also do is we take input from, like I said, sort of our own terrestrial network that we still run and operate. So we're able to communicate both ways with our devices mm -hmm. on the terrestrial network. And then, but the backhaul, so the actual trans transmission out of the device is largely cellular-based. Okay. Um, and I guess that's the sort of the, the sort of where where has in large ways defined where IoT is today is that how does once I, if I have a device we ignore for the fact that that it's in a car mm. 
have a device, it has some sensors on, those sensors could be GPS, it could be positional, but it could also be things like, in our case, we, we have accelerometer sensors on the, on the vehicle as well to try and tell, um, you know, it's change in acceleration. We can also tell how you're driving, so that's always mm -hmm. interesting, is that, you know, if you obviously, if you're swerving quick, quite quickly, we get lateral accelerometer data. Mm -hmm. If you brake very, very rapidly, we can see the deceleration. Obviously, we try and figure out if you've been in an accident as well. Maybe we can talk a little bit about that. Mm -hmm. So I guess the intent with sort of what I'm trying to explain is that IoT is sort of this culmination of having a device out there, a small device with sensors on it, whatever those sensors happen to be, and then transmitting that information back to some type of cloud. Okay. And in our world, we're, we're mostly resident in Microsoft's Azure's clouds. So we transmit that data, and you need a connectivity stack to get back. And, and that's why cellular is, is, is so important mm. in that. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, the, the networks themselves, and, and I know you, you, you talk a lot about what's happening in the network space and the, and, the, and, and, and the telco space. I think what's happened is the evolution of that up until now has sort of been, well, cell phones came up, 2G came up uh, sort of you know, 20, 20 odd, 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. People realized that all of a sudden you now had a network capability that wasn't tied to your Wi-Fi in your house, all right? And, and so when tracking systems originally started, they almost, some of them actually literally took cell phones, took them out of their cases and bolted them into, <laughs> into a vehicle and transmitted their GPS data over a cell phone, right? And the industry grew and now, now you get, a, you know, now you get a, a GSM device in a module that size, they're made in China, you can buy them 10 to a dozen, mm -hmm. you know, they cost a couple of dollars each. Um, so the connectivity has become ridiculous, but what's happening is that the network now providers have now finally realized that there is a space for IoT devices. Because in some ways, there's two classes of devices. Mm. There's you and I who want to watch YouTube in 1080p on our phones, who actually care a lot about connectivity, but also the bandwidth behind that connectivity. But the other class of devices, ostensibly the IoT device, it really doesn't really need high volume, high bandwidth connectivity. It just needs good coverage in a large area. Mm. And so there's sort of two standards that are evolving now. This, I'm sure you've heard uh, talk about Sigfox, was originally SquidNet in South Africa. That's ostensibly a network that has stood up to provide IoT connectivity. That network's just been rescued. Um, was Nestor one of the participants in that? We were originally. Um, we weren't financially in, in it, we, but, but we did build some devices that supported the network, and we still have them. So mm -hmm. we, we do believe there is a future there. Yeah. Um, and I'll, I'll explain why now. Um, and, and, but... Uh, what's also happening is, you know, the mobile operators are not going to get left behind. They mm -hmm. realize how big what they call machine-to-machine -machine or IoT is. And so there's a GSM standard that's evolving that's called NB-IoT, narrowband IoT, that is specifically engineered in the GSM spectrum mm -hmm. to be, because what you want in, in, in this world is high, high contingency or high con collective con connectivity, but less bandwidth. Mm -hmm. So if you connect on a standard cellular network, basically you, every one of your connections becomes something like a phone. In this world, what you want is a very narrow band and hence the narrow band term in there. So it means you can have lots of devices connected to the network, not eating a ton of spectrum because mm. they don't, don't need 5G YouTube type quality. Mm. They just need to send a data stream out. And so NBIT sort of is the direct compete in, in some respects to that. And then there's the LoRa standard, which is sort of more of a, LoRa is a bit more of a toolbox, right? It's more of a, so he has the he has the technology stack, and people can stand up their own networks using mm -hmm. more technology mm -hmm. to to connect to the backend. Yeah. Anyway, the, the the long and short of it is that you need to get the data off the device and into the cloud, and those are sort of the three choices you have at the moment right now. And I think you know 
I suspect what's going to happen is we're going to have a probably a sum of Sigfox and NBIoT kind of mm. dominating the space in, in, in a while, and it'll, it'll be good to have some optionality. Right, right. What, what, which technology makes more sense for a company like Netstar? Yeah, so, so we, as I said, we sort of, we, 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 we did engineer some products around Sigfox um, when, the, when the SquidNet uh, sort of startup, well, it was a largely funded startup, sort of had some issues. We, we changed direction a little bit. We've, so we now sort of have a dual, dual strategy. We'll look at both Sigfox, mm-hmm. but we're, we're heavily invested in going down the NBIT route okay. as well. Um, okay. And, you know, the, I, I guess the mobile operators have enough funding, mm-hmm. <laughs> enough capital um, to, build, to build large NBIOT networks. Mm-hmm. I think from their perspective, they're obviously looking at the demand side. Um, my understanding is that most of the LTE base stations support NBIOT, and they really just, it's a software switch to turn mm-hmm. it on. And mm-hmm. I know for a fact that Vodacom has pretty good coverage, not actually nationally. So I think we'll see it, do a sort of start see it mm-hmm. entering the market pretty quickly now. So t- take us through, uh, give me an idea of the size of the NetStar uh, ecosystem network, how many devices, right. endpoints do you have out there that are feeding data back all the time? Yeah. How many of those are cellular connected? How many of them are connected to an IoT network? Right. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting company. We sort of have uh, anywhere north of a million devices, actually sort of 1.2, somewhere around there, um, growing all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, those devices, lots, most of them are, are cellular connected. Um, again, we, we have a secondary channel through our, through our RF network to speak to them. Um, we ship anywhere north of sort of 300 million messages a day mm. off those devices into our back end. Um, we concentrate all that back end in data into our cloud infrastructure. These are small packets of data that are coming Yes, very small messages. Um, they can be bigger. So if a vehicle's been in an accident, for instance, then we stream quite high resolution data mm. on mm. accelerometer and GPS. Uh, and we take people's safety very seriously. Yeah. So, so yeah. then we try and figure out quite accurately whether you've been in an accident or not. So the packets can grow. Um, we also have a fairly big uh, camera network. So what we're also doing is building up a, a fleet of cameras. So for instance, every single Patco bus in South Africa or in, in, in Gauteng in our area has a set of NetStar cameras on board. And those cameras are becoming a lot more capable. And as you can imagine, their data bandwidth gets big quickly, right? Because yeah. we're looking at both you know, road-facing video, we're looking at in-cab and, and passenger safety video. Um, we, we also have some pretty clever um, AI-based cameras now that we're using to determine driver behavior, both in terms of you know, um, concentration on following the road, but there's also really nice AI models that predict driver fatigue and distracted driving. So, mm. so all of that video is coming into our back-end systems as well. And we is that all happening in real time, or does the video get synced at a certain time of the day? Yeah, it's an interesting question. So we, we've had to deal with that problem. So, so we have the ability to send some snapshot data in real time, so right. they are all connected. Mm-hmm. Um, but then what we also do is we have in-cab storage of that video, and then... In depot scenarios, we offload bulk that video where we have a better better link, so so that we don't all send everything over the over the cellular network right. where we have a dedicated Wi-Fi network. And is it all being analysed by computers, or yeah. do you take chunks of it uh, and and look at it as a human being, have a look at the video? I mean, how does it yeah, how is it processed in the back end? Great question. Um, yeah, I, I guess we kind of we sort of stumbling into this whole big data type scenario, but I, I guess that's sort of the the evolution of IoT in some respects, right, is that IoT, as I guess, is this creator of large amounts of data. Mm. Um, and, and I think the world is starting to deal with, with that problem, right, where you know, up until a couple of years ago, it was, how do I get the data, right? How do I connect it? That was, that was the challenge of the time, is the, the, 
collecting of the data and shipping it. Mm -hmm. But as, as we've sort of discussed, the networks are becoming much more capable, connectivity, there is optionality now. So now, I think the world is moving away from, okay, we're pretty comfortable collecting large amounts of data, whether it's video or telematics or temperature sensors or whatever the case may be. We've got this all on the cloud now, so now how do we deal with this amount of data? And camera is such a good example, right? So you know, with all of our hundreds of buses that, that we manage, you, know, you start dealing with some real practical problems, like are all the cameras on the buses working? So we're starting to more and more deploy AI to look at our data estate and to try and reason over our data estate. So, so we, do use, we do use employees and, and, and humans to help us look at the data. But our point of view is that we would like to make that as, as uh, you know, we, we don't want to use humans for the really menial tasks, yes. right? We want humans to, add, to work on the value additive tasks. So for instance, our AI models now are reasoning over that, that camera data and trying to determine whether the, at least the cameras are in a working state. Because mm -hmm. when you have hundreds and hundreds of cameras out there, you want to make sure that at least on a specific bus, you have an operating set of cameras. So we're looking at that data to determine, you know, are the cameras pointing in the right direction? Are they mm -hmm. dirty? Are they blurred? Are they... And so we've built some pretty smart custom models to figure out you know, what the data estate looks like. And then um, we're doing the same thing sort of on our telematics data. So one thing that's really important for us is determine whether a vehicle has been in an accident. And so we are using AI quite extensively on our, on our telematics data to look at the crash analytics that comes with the vehicle. So yeah, our devices, have, like as I said, have accelerometers and they mm. look at the GPS data. And so a device will say, I think I've been in an accident. Mm -hmm. But we have limited processing capability on the edge. Something that we can talk about but, but later, maybe it's how sort of the edge is becoming more capable. But today, certainly that's the truth. So we ship that data to our server and then we have a very complex uh, you know, multi-year project that we've worked on to refine that data to determine whether it's really been an accident so that we can build up a model to determine whether it's been an accident. And I can say, Dunk, it's been an accident, and I can tell his insurer or tell his healthcare provider that we think you've been in an accident. And of course, their accuracy is important. You can't, you can't, be telling, I can't be telling you every five minutes you've been in an accident and you haven't. And mm. You get into the cry-wolf scenario. Mm. So, so I, I think that's sort of how the world is evolving, right, where we got comfortable storing data, collecting data, but now the challenge is analyzing the data and getting insight and meaning out of the data. Yeah, yeah. fascinating. I mean, a lot of the data that you're, that you're getting in uh, and the patterns that you're able to determine from that data must be very similar across many instances. I mean, you could probably tell if a vehicle has been stolen yeah. based on driving behavior has suddenly changed yeah. or yeah. it's going into an area that's yep. where, where the driver doesn't normally go. Yes. That sort of thing. Um, Absolutely. You're able to determine all of that. Um, I mean, if a vehicle gets stolen, could NetStar potentially say, uh, the, you know, the owner might not be via the, near the vehicle at the time, it gets stolen from a shopping center. Could you actually potentially proactively say, we think this vehicle has been stolen, let's contact the owner? Yes, so we actually absolutely do that. So, so today, we have, a, we have a feature called, we call early warning. Mm -hmm. So um, our early warning customers, we give them a little, a little key fob to put on their keys. Right. Um, and that's, that's a nice leading indicator because if we see the vehicle move mm. without that key fob being present, we know automatically that something nefarious is happening. Mm. Um, of course, the bad guys do interesting stuff. So sometimes they try and block signals, et cetera, mm. et cetera. But we know with a fairly high degree of accuracy that, 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 that especially if, you, if you're on our early warning feature, that, that, that you've moved. Um, I think um, we also do, especially more so in, less so in the consumer side, but certainly as you sort of get through our, through our more mature tier. So, in our fleet operation environments, our small and medium businesses, and of course in our, in our large fleet businesses, 
you start getting to two scenarios, and you can actually do it. <laughs> you can actually do it with 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 a product that we have today. So your, your example of going to areas that you shouldn't. Mm -hmm. So if you if you if you're a customer of ours, we have a really cool app. It's called My Netstar. You should go check it out if you don't use it. And you can draw geo zones around areas that you want notification on. Mm -hmm. So you can today in our in our consumer app, you can say if my vehicle ever goes there, please send me a notification. And we'll That's do cool. that if your vehicle ever goes there. So you kind of now start being, it's exactly the point you were making, right? You started becoming a little more in control yeah. of your data. And, and, I, and I guess that's also the other sort of way IoT is going is that, you know, we can provide you a point of view. But what's also nice is we provide you a set of tooling because your behavior might be slightly different from the next person's behavior. So your, your idea of a geozone maybe not be somebody else's idea of a geozone. Mm. So, so certainly we can do that. But I think sort of where, where you were alluding to is, is getting really interesting. And I suppose it's, it comes back to that AI discussion, right? And maybe it's just a, where the industry is right now and where compute is. Um, and I think cloud has been a large provider of that. Is that, I guess the holy grail of a lot of the stuff is that you start getting an individual-based model based on Duncan's behavior, right? And I think the insurers have gone there, well, not, not all of them, but some of them have gone there with, let's call it UBI and driver behavior. So sort of what discovery started, but... You know, the, the whole advent of what we call UBI or user-based insurance is sort of gaining momentum globally now. But it's, it, I guess the trend there is individual-based models, whether it's to affect your insurance premium or to determine your driver behavior. Mm -hmm. And I guess we're at a point, this is why I made the, the, the point at the beginning, is we're at a point in the industry where we have enough compute to reason over all of that data that we have and then build an individual model for Duncan. Mm -hmm where I can say, well, this is Duncan's typical driving behavior and almost fingerprint you and say that if we see Duncan driving differently, provide an alert. Mm -hmm. Up until now, it's been, the, the model to do it has been known, right? But the compute to do it has been really prohibitive, right? You know, when you've got 1.2 million customers, 1.2 million devices, to reason over 1.2 million models becomes quite tough, right? Mm -hmm. But we're at at that point, finally, where there is enough compute in the cloud to be able to do that practically, you know, and practically means you know, financially practically as well, mm. and to provide a service that is valuable that hopefully you can monetize. So I think we're going to see a lot more of that individual-based experience reasoning over your data without you having to hard code the parameters, but where the model can provide you insight for what it's learned. And I think that, that, that area is right for explosion right now. Fascinating. Fascinating. So um, I, w I wanted to just uh, switch tack a little bit because I want to talk a bit about what NetStar is doing in uh, uh, the autonomous driving space, particularly industrial applications. And I think mining, you've got some actual yes. uh, examples of, of, of some projects that you've uh, deployed. Yes. Uh, so um, you, you've got technology that uh, is, is preventing vehicles in industrial scenarios, yes. having accidents with each other and knocking people over, yeah. and that sort of thing. Tell us a bit about what you're doing there. Yeah, so, so um, in mining specifically, you know, there's some governance and some legislation around these very heavy, uh, uh, the large sort of large yellow metal, but even the bigger ones, right? Mm. These large trucks on you know, some of these open cast mines specifically. They're huge, yeah. They're all massive, <laughs> right? And if you think about driving that thing, you know, the driver's on a little box at the front. Yes. He has no idea what's happening around him. So he has a point of view that's, that's here and he can see sort of in, in front of him, but he can't always see on the sides mm -hmm. or around him. So the legislation is about, they, they call it collision avoidance. Um, and, and what we've done is we've had a, a very complex project, a multi-year engineering and software project that, that we've delivered that does what we call collision avoidance detection and prevention. Um, 
And basically, we, we, we put these devices on each of those big vehicles, and, and it's not just GPS data. So there's, there's, uh, there's, there's, there's time in flight calculations, so these things actually speak to each other in real time. So it's not going back up to the satellite and coming back down on the server. It's actually happening in real time um, on the, in the environment. And they do these pretty complex calculations of where that device is, and there's multiple transmission points along these, these large vehicles to figure out are these things actually going to potentially impact each other. We then provide the driver in the cab with some audible and visual feedback. Mm -hmm. um, and if the vehicle supports it, you know, we've done some work with some of the universities, we can actually plug into the autonomous system and for instance, break the vehicle and bring it to a halt if need be. Mm -hmm. And so it's a really nice example, I think, of where sort of traditional telematics is going. So we're definitely not, uh, we're not claiming to be, you know, Tesla and, and, and driving the vehicle, but I think this is pretty serious stuff in terms of not riding over, over pedestrians. And we put it down onto the people level, onto the, onto the, the smaller vehicles that are driving mm. around there, because one of these big trucks may not see a bucky down here and literally just ride over it. Right? Mm. So, so it's, it's a really, it's a really great solution. Um, we've deploying it quite successfully over multiple months here and, and up into Africa and our customers are, are really happy with it. So it's really exciting to see what you can do. Um, kind of dealing with helping save people's lives ostensibly, and, and really it does in some scenarios, and using local technology and innovation to do that. So, yeah, it's interesting what you say about you're not being Tesla, but I mean, are there potential applications of taking this out of an industrial environment and using it in a car? Yeah, I mean, look, we think about that all the time, right? Um, we do, we're definitely thinking about how do we take our telematics devices and and, and use them in a larger environment. Um, we you know we we obviously talk a lot to the local OEMs in the market and what they're doing in terms of telematics. Um, I, I think, you know, collision avoidance in, in high velocity scenarios gets a lot more interesting. Mm -hmm. I think there you, you're probably dealing a lot more with video analytics than you are with, you know, with telematics data. Um, 5G probably is a, is, a, is a leading indicator of that. I, so I think a lot of what 5G promises somewhere down the road, excuse the pun, is that inter-vehicle communication. Yeah. So I, I, we're certainly keeping an eye on that and seeing what role we play in that because I think that's when it does all come together, right? Because today, if you just look at our example on the mine, right, the reason it works is because we're able, we have a solution that speaks between the vehicles. So mm -hmm. if you understand what each other are doing, you can build models to prevent or reinforce the scenario that you want to. I think today, the, the, the challenge mostly is, is that most vehicles operate independently of each other, right? Mm -hmm. And if you think about your driving today, it's you, the human, who's looking at the other vehicles around you and making decisions on how you behave in that scenario. Mm -hmm. But I think once we get to the nirvana of having inter-vehicle connectivity, then I think the world changes very rapidly, right? Because mm -hmm. then your vehicle knows that a car, 10 cars ahead or 20 cars ahead has just braked rapidly. Mm -hmm. You can't even see it yet, but it starts preparing for that or even avoiding the scenario. That's, I think, the world we're moving to yeah. quite quickly. Yeah. I just hope he's, uh, there's enough electricity for these 5G <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a different discussion. <laughs> Infrastructure is, is a given, I suppose. <laughs> Before I let you go, Cliff, I know you're passionate about uh, education and skills development, etc. Um, you're doing a, a heck of a lot of interesting stuff at NetStar, um, ML, AI, etc. It requires some pretty advanced uh, skills. Uh, are we producing enough of those skills here in South Africa? Can you get the talent at NetStar that you need? What are your views around that and yeah. what the universities perhaps should be doing to prepare youngsters for this new world of work? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it is a massive passion of mine. I think something that, that I got quite deeply involved in when I was at Microsoft, I did run a developer education business. Yeah. Um, 
and I still remain quite deeply entrenched in it. So I'm on a board of a local school, um, under Grayson Prep in, in Santons. I still sit on their board. I'm on, on two advisory boards at Vitz still. Um, and, and I guess the reason I do that is that I'm, I really think sort of South Africa is at this inflection point of, you know, I think there's a lot of talk about fourth industrial revolution and we all understand that the world is fundamentally changing, right, in terms of, you know, I think there'll always be a place for resources and economies that can produce raw materials. And I think we'll participate well in that. And we've just shown over the last couple of years how well our resource market has done and mm. largely supported the country in its current Saved us. <laughs> Exactly. Let's call it what it is, right? Yeah. But I think we should not shy away from the fact that the knowledge economy globally is growing at an astronomical rate. And I think we're at this point where we must decide whether we want to participate in that, right? Mm. And participation can mean two things. It can mean participation in terms of consumption of what some of the other markets on the world are doing, or participation could mean, are we an active participant in producing, building, engineering solutions in this fourth industrial world? And there, I think the key ingredients, you know, are education, capacity to, 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 to play in that world, um, globalization in terms of how do we not compete globally, but also how do we, how do we collaborate globally? Um, and, and hence my sort of some of my involvement at, at, at Vitz. I, I think we, we sit on, we still sit on, you know, really globally competitive R&D thinking, I think we solve problems in a very unique way, but I think it's also incumbent on us to make sure that our literacy, our mass literacy, our engineering literacy, our, our, our ability to produce engineers, uh, scientists, uh, you know, biologists at that right level are, are essential if we're going to participate in this world, right? Because the technology is really coming together at the moment to solve some of the most complex problems there are on the earth today. And I think it's really important for us to think carefully about the skills we produce to play in that market. Um, and it starts at, a basic, at the basic education level um, where I guess there is a worrying lack of capacity in terms of teaching resources around maths and science. Yeah, I mean, it, there, there is. And, and again, I, I think, and I, I don't only want to make it government's problem because I don't think it is, right? And I think that's personally why I give a fair amount of my own time towards it. Um, good friend and a mentor of mine, um, ex-Microsoft ex GM, Zohar Hussain, sits on the maths board. Um, you look at the amazing work that that organization does to help with teacher maths literacy. I think it's incumbent on lots of us who are passionate about this to help be the change and not just sit on the fence and criticize it, right? Because I think that's the way the problem really gets solved is when people roll up their sleeves, dig in and get it done, right? So yeah, there's definitely challenges, there's no doubt. But you know, I'm always encouraged with when you sort of get in the trenches, you see the potential. Mm. I think it gives everybody it gives everybody a, a, so, so much uh, so much passion for what could be right. So, so I think if everybody plays their part, I definitely think we can participate in a meaningful way, right? But yeah, let's not shy away from the fact that we do have some work to do, right? Both at the at the, at the primary level, the tertiary level, and I think if everybody gets involved, we can solve this problem. On that positive note, uh, I think we could carry on talking all day, Cliff, but uh, we, we need to draw the line on the conversation somewhere. Uh, on that positive note, thank you so much for sharing your fascinating insights with Tech Central and for joining us in the studio today. Cliff DeVitt is CTO at NetStar. Thank you, Duncan. Thank you for having me.